We're going to cover verses 17 through 34 this morning. I'm going to read that passage now, if you like, and if you're willing and able. Feel free to stand with me as we read the Word of God. The apostle who wrote the letter, Paul, says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. Have you ever seen a gathering get out of hand? I was thinking about that question, and I thought about, and none of you would have thought of this. Some of you aren't old enough, and some of you were, wouldn't have been interested, but I thought about the 1993 Stanley Cup Finals, because I'm a hockey guy, and that's just where my, went, my brain went. And I thought about, in Montreal, after the series was over, there were riots in the streets, Montreal, Quebec, Canada is what we would call a, a hockey-crazed city. After the championship series in the NHL, in which Montreal played, dozens of cars were turned over and destroyed, stores were looted, almost a thousand officers were dispatched, and over a hundred people arrested in Montreal. Now here's the funny thing. Montreal won. 
by the way, the last time a Canadian team won the Stanley Cup, 1993, go USA, we've got the rest. But after winning, the city erupted at first in joy and celebration, and then things got out of hand. And it turned into a full-on riot with stores looted. And I remember as a boy watching this and thinking, what's wrong with them? Like, how did that happen? How did that escalate to that? They uh, abandoned, it seems, the purpose of their celebration. This would be, should be a joyful thing. You won the Stanley Cup. And it spiraled out of control, got out of hand. Something similar happened in Corinth, not with looting and rioting and all that, but the, the celebration, the initial reason for coming together and celebrating was lost, and things got out of hand. They forgot the purpose and the meaning and the significance of their gathering together. So Paul writes to correct them. As Josh noted earlier, in these few chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians from about 11 to 14, these are all about public worship and how the church is supposed to conduct itself when it comes together. So it has a word on, as we talked about last week, how men and women are to present themselves, and it will have a word on using different gifts, and at the heart of it all, how we ought to love God and others in the midst of using our gifts. And then, in the middle of that, we have this word on communion, because as the Corinthians gathered to celebrate communion and celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, they had forgotten who they were worshiping, and what they were supposed to be doing. So Paul writes to correct them, and his main point in correcting them is this. This is kind of the main point of the whole section. Our communal worship must reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. That's a summary of the whole section, verses 17 through 34. Our communal worship must reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. In other words, as we gather together in worship, we have to make sure our hearts are in the right place and what we do actually represents Jesus Christ well and reflects his sacrifice. Why do we need this message? We need this because our hearts have a tendency to drift towards self-worship. Even in our worship of God, we have a sinful tendency, all of us, an inclination to make worship about us. We make worship about our experience, to meet our needs, to satisfy our desires, and very quickly we may stumble into making the whole thing about us, when in reality it's about him. I'm reminded of a story of an old a Scottish pastor who had a young gal come into his office and talk about the worship service, and she was saying, you know, our worship service, I, I just don't feel anything in it. It's very dry, and I don't feel like it's causing me to love God the way I should. I'm not experiencing anything. I just I don't feel enough. And the old pastor replied to her, my dear, worship is not a glandular condition. In other words, worship at its core is not about how it makes us feel. Worship is giving praise and honor to Jesus Christ, who died for us. It's not about satisfying our desires. And that is how Paul wants to correct the Corinthians as they gather for worship. Our communal worship must reflect Sacrificial love of Christ. Paul's going to point out three important aspects of the Corinthian communion, uh, three realities. First, he'll talk about their desecration of communion. Then he'll talk about the sacrifice of Christ, and he'll finish this section talking about the judgment of God. Three very simple sections. 
First, the desecration of communion, verses 17 through 22. The Corinthian church had violated the goodness of communion in the way they practiced it. And their celebration was less than useful, it was actually harmful. The desecration of communion, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You remember last week as we began this chapter, Paul said, I commend you. You're doing a good job for the Corinthians. You've done some things wrong, but overall I commend you. You've kept to the traditions passed down to you in your worship. So Paul has a nice favorable word for them at the start. But now here, as we begin this section, he says, I don't commend you in this. Here, it's all correction. In fact, he says, it would be better if you did not get together. Your souls, your spiritual lives would be better off if you didn't meet together as a church. That's an astounding word. That's instructive for us. Because we assume that all church and all gatherings are good and will help us and will benefit us. But here we are clearly told we can gather, it is possible, to worship and to gather together in such a way that actually hurts us. It's actually harmful for us. And that should serve as a caution. That just because we enjoy it, just because it feels good, just because it's popular and there are a lot of people filing in to experience it, just because it is well-reputed, just because a gathering seems like it has a lot going on, it does not mean it is doing spiritual good. There's not a necessary correlation between those two things. For example, what does Jesus say to one of the churches in Revelation? You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Which tells us it is possible on a human level to think everything is wonderful and on a spiritual level to be doing harm. So, we should be very careful not to assess our worship on how we feel about it. Then you would say, on what basis do we evaluate our worship? If not by how we feel about it. Well, we have scripture before us to tell us what we are to do in worship We have scripture to tell us who Jesus Christ is so that we evaluate our worship based on does it match up with who Jesus is and what we know of him. Does it honor Jesus Christ our Lord? That's the question we should be asking. Sometime we'll do, you know, assessment of our church, right? We're required by our constitution. Bylaws every once in a while. We all love them. Uh, I love them the most, being assessed. No, no. But... As we do that, one of the questions we should ask ourselves, 
is our gathering, is our worship, does it reflect who Jesus Christ is? Because we can worship anywhere we want, we can worship anytime we want, but we are not to worship anyhow we want. We have to worship in accordance with what the Word of God says. And Paul's going to correct them in how they worshipped. Because in fact, in reality, it wasn't worship. Now note here, there's a couple of things to note in the background. That as they were gathered together, you'll see they were eating full meals. And they were doing this whenever they gathered. Which tells us a couple of things. That it was normal for early church, whenever they gathered together, to take communion together. It was part of the core, maybe even uh, alongside or even more so than hearing from the uh, apostles' teaching, they gathered for the sake of remembering Christ and taking this meal together. It was part and parcel with worship. So when somebody asks, why do we take communion every week? We do it because that was a pattern of the early church and the church throughout history. This is why they gathered together, in part, a major part, to take the meal together. You'll also notice it was a meal. right? There was enough there for some to get drunk, for some to get full, for others to go hungry. But well, the point is, it was a meal that was taken together. And early on, it appears that the, the church had what they would be known to be called as a agape feast, love feast, or they would gather together in love for one another in Christ, and they would have a meal together. And part of that meal was the blessing of the bread and the cup. Eventually, over time, that ritual, the ceremony of the blessing of the bread and the cup, kind of got separated from the meal itself. It appears because the church started to meet regularly on Sunday mornings in honor of the resurrection of the Lord, and that was not an opportune time to have a big old meal together. Those were usually evening things. So worship moved towards Sunday mornings, and worship over time moved a kind of out of people's homes and into formal church buildings, so it became less conducive to meals. But all throughout, the, the full meal aspect was kind of lost, but they kept, the church kept, that ceremony which we know as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, kept that as a central part of their worship. Early on, though, the Corinthians gathered together for full meals, but it was not good when they did it. What was going on, it seems, is that there were some who got full and some who went hungry, and there was a division, a segregation of rich and poor, or the socially elite and wealthy, and those who had less. It appears what was going on was, in that culture, it was normal for, in meal and gatherings and festivals and all that, for the socially elite to be served first and to have a better spot in the meal. There's actually, um, we have history of recording somebody writing, complaining about those who are of higher status eating all the food in a non-Christian ceremony. It was just kind of a common thing that the social elite, as you wandered into a home, they would have better service, even better food, they'd have an inner seat, and those who were not as high a status would be on the outside and they might not get any. So there was a favoring of those who had wealth. And at the same time, it may be that those who had wealth and had higher status, they were your white-collar jobs, would have more flexibility in their schedule, and it may be that they were actually able to get to the meal first, while those who were laboring 
who did not have as much flexibility in their schedules could only come when their work was done, so they would actually get there later. That may have been what was going on also. But the end result was some had better food all to themselves, and they ate it all and consumed it, and then some who were more hungry, poor, came and were left out of the meal. There was a selfishness in their eating and their gathering. Some of you may remember the rule that is practiced in school if you're going to bring gum. Did you bring enough for the whole class? Right? Did you bring a treat for the whole class? And the Corinthians were not. And there is division because of it. Paul says, I can't commend you in this. He says, if you're so hungry and desperate to fill yourself, eat at home. Grab a Snickers. Take care of it. Because it's not the point of why we gather together. We do not gather together in our worship to have all of our desires and needs met and to fill ourselves on all our sinful cravings. And in that, I think there's a caution for us here. Even if we don't have full meals where people are getting drunk, there's a caution for us. As you gather together, are you considerate of the whole body? Or are you gathering to have your own personal needs met? We may complain about not being fed in worship, but we may ask the question, is worship about consuming? So how do we apply this? Well, if I might, a word to some of our children and donut holes. We generously as a church provide donut holes in our gathering, and I love that. And it's great. It builds fellowship, hospitality, but just something to consider. After the service, maybe don't sprint to the donut holes, knocking people over so that you can get there first. Consider, kids young and old, who do we worship? How can we be selfless in our gathering together. Considering the songs we sing, maybe a song isn't your preference, but consider, maybe it's somebody else's favorite. And as we sing together, is it about meeting our own individual preferences? Maybe you're one of those people who say, well, I just don't really like to sing. Where in Scripture does it say, sing only if you feel like it? As I read the Psalms, we are commanded to sing all throughout. Maybe it's not about how you feel. We're not here to get our needs met. We are here to offer up praise to our God. And we should do so in a way that doesn't cause divisions. It isn't selfish. Only concerned about our own wants and desires. I would, con- 
I guess I'll say this is something we tried to keep in mind right as we went through COVID. How do we meet together when we all have different preferences? We don't want to create divisions within the church of those who are cautious, those who are careless, masked, unmasked, vaccinated or not. How do we do all of that in a way that brings us together and doesn't divide us? I'm not sure we did it perfectly. I'm not going to claim we did, but that was one of the things that was in our minds. This passage was in our minds as we thought about how do we do this in a way that honors Christ and doesn't divide us up. So we don't want to create multiple services catered to each and every person's individual preferences. We are one body. I would encourage a lot of you in this. I'd say to you, people who are newer here, Look around to those who have been here a long time. Those who have been here 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Something will be universally true of all of them. They have existed at the church, committed to the church and God's people here through all sorts of phases. Different pastors, different music styles, friends and family coming and going. And they've suffered through it all and remained because they were committed to the body of Jesus Christ and not their own preferences at all times. And they're a wonderful testimony of not coming here for selfish reasons, but to worship with the body. I take great encouragement in that. The temptation will always be there for us to divide along lines of preference, for us to not consider others and their preferences, to come together selfishly as the Corinthians were. And Paul will ask them to remember who it is they're worshiping. And that's what he does next. These familiar words, verses 23 through 26, Paul focuses on the sacrifice of Christ. These are known as the words of institution, the words that Christ spoke when he instituted communion, the Lord's Supper. These words don't just float in a vacuum. We read them separately all the time, but they don't float in a vacuum. These words are here for a reason. Paul has a pastoral, practical application for reciting these words here and now. There's a reason. They are a reminder to Corinthians of how they have fallen short of the sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of the sacrifice he made. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul here refers back to the words Jesus spoke at the Last Supper. We know Paul wasn't there, but these words were probably passed on to him from Jesus through one of his disciples, one of the apostles, who communicated them to Paul. And Paul's going to, in the same way the people of Whoville taught the Grinch the true meaning of Christmas, he's going to teach them, the Corinthians, the true meaning of communion. This is what it's all about. We know these words came from uh, Jesus during that last meal, which was a Passover meal. What was Passover? What was that meal? It was that meal that celebrated and remembered how God saved his people out of Egypt. 
It's a meal of remembrance. Exodus 12:14 says, "This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast." And that was the law for the Israelites as they celebrated the Passover, remembering how God saved them out of Egypt, it was to be a memorial day, a remembrance meal. So Jesus is there at Passover the night before his own crucifixion with bread in hand, knowing he would be betrayed, knowing one of his closest disciples would give him over, knowing the death that awaited for him, knowing he would be crucified, he would be beaten, bearing the penalty of sin on the cross, knowing his own death was short, he took the bread and gave thanks. The word in Greek, Eucharisto, from which we get the Eucharist, Thanksgiving. He gave thanks. as he was about to die for others. And you contrast that with the Corinthians who were coming to fill themselves and get drunk. Remember Jesus, who gave thanks for the honor, for God's leading him to be sacrificed for others. And he said, as he held the bread and broke it, this is my body. Quite ironically, that verse has caused a lot of division in the church. How are we to understand that this bread is the body and the cup is the blood of Jesus? What does he mean by that? This is my body. So the Catholic position, something called transubstantiation, is that the bread actually becomes Christ's literal body. And the cup becomes his blood so that when we take it, we eat and drink the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. It transforms. That's transubstantiation. There's the Lutheran position, which is consubstantiation. The Lutheran position is that the bread and the cup doesn't actually change into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, but it kind of holds the body and blood of Jesus Christ the way like a sponge would hold water. That the bread and the cup contain body and blood of Jesus. Then there's a guy named Zwingli who came along and he said, no, that's not actually, literally, us eating Jesus' body and blood. This is a symbol. So when we take communion, we just remember through these symbols which represent the body and blood of Jesus. And I think that's how most of us think about communion as we take these elements, and that's our fancy Theological word, the elements. We remember Christ as a symbol. I personally lean a little bit more towards another position. There's John Calvin. He taught something a little different. He said that in the bread and the cup, we are spiritually present with Christ. He said it's not his actual body, because his body remains in heaven glorified 
ascended there, that's where his body is. It isn't anywhere else, and we don't re-sacrifice him when we take communion. But as we come together and take communion, we are actually united to Christ in the heavenly realm by the Spirit. Calvin wasn't satisfied with these elements just being a symbol. They seem to be more than that. Nor is he going to say these are actually his body and blood. He's saying, no, there's something more going on here, something kind of maybe in between. We are, as we take communion, united to Christ himself by the Spirit. There's a, a real presence of Christ. It's, I lean towards that. We don't have to. That's just me personally. I kind of lean towards that understanding because I think there's something significant going on in communion that is beyond just a symbol of remembrance. And we'll see why here in a few verses. But something significant is going on when Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood in the new covenant. We in the Spirit are united together in and with Christ. In the new covenant, as he says. And Jesus says as he lifts up the cup, this is my blood in the new covenant. And why the cup? Why is that associated specifically with the new covenant? The cup is the blood of Christ. And throughout scripture, covenants, agreements between God and his people, are formalized by blood. Noah, when he gets out of the altar, God makes a covenant with him. I will never do this again. I will never flood. When he gets out of the ark, he says that God says, I will never flood the world again. Makes a covenant with Noah. Noah makes sacrifices on the altar. Blood spilled. Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. I will make you, out of you, a people. You'll be blessed. Numerable people. How does God formalize that covenant with Abraham? There's a torch that passes between animals killed and blood spilled. The old covenant with Moses. God makes a promise to Israel I'll be your God, you'll be my people. If you follow these commands, walk in these ways, and be my people, you will experience blessing forever, and you'll live with me. How is that covenant kept over and over? Sacrifices of animals, over and over, poured out on the altar, blood spilled. Leviticus 4.7 says, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord, as in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering as at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And there's sacrifices where the people demonstrated their faith in God through animal sacrifices. Blood was poured out, literally poured out of a cup. So that's why you have this language in the New Testament all throughout the Gospels of a cup of suffering. Why is the cup equated with suffering? Because the cup is a cup of blood. Something sacrificed. Covenants were formalized with blood because life is in the blood and blood symbolizes death and death is what happens when the covenants are broken. So Jesus lifts up the cup, which is the cup of his suffering, and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is how the new covenant is going to be kept. This is how you are going to be kept in this new covenant. Not by your blood, not by an animal's blood, but by my blood. Poured out once. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then Jesus' cup, he is the one who suffers on the cross to put the covenant in place. It is his blood that is poured out. It is his blood that makes the new covenant with us. And the new covenant is not like the old covenant. For God's people to stay in the old covenant, 
Sacrifices had to be made over and over and over and over and over again, and blood poured out over and over and over and over again. And every time we take communion, we remember that there was one sacrifice that was sufficient for all. It is his sacrifice, not ours, that keeps us in the covenant. And we raise the cup, blessing that God, the God who sacrificed himself for us. In that time, in meals, they would be, we talked about this last week, sacrifices and offerings made to Dionysus, the god of wine. Begin a meal, bless the cup, and bless Dionysus, the god of merriment and feasting and wine. And, and there's actual uh, history of condemnation for those who did not keep up the festival with a proper level of merriment in honoring Dionysus the way they should. There's an expectation that if you're going to bless Dionysus, then your party better be rocking. And you're actually failing Dionysus if you don't have enough merriment at the party, right? Because he's the god of that. Maybe the Corinthians had brought some of that culture into communion, but they weren't blessing the cup of Dionysus. They were blessing the cup of Jesus Christ, the one who sacrificed. And if they're going to bless that cup, and if they're going to lift that cup in remembrance of him, they better remember who the god is that they're worshiping. It's the God who loves others so much that he gave up his own life for them. And that ought to reflect or ought to be represented in the way you worship. Don't dishonor that God in your worship. Come together, gather in such a way that you honor the Lamb who was slain for us. That's why Paul brings them back to the meaning of communion. Remember your God as a Savior. And then also, remember your God as a judge. Verses 27 through 34. Paul finishes with a warning to Corinthians about the judgment of God. If they do not take communion rightly, they may come under and have come under the judgment of God. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. This is why Paul is giving them this word and this caution. It's not because he loves beating them up for things they do wrong. It's because he loves them and wants to spare them from judgment. So he says, don't eat in an unworthy manner. Don't take this communion in a way unbecoming of God in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? He elaborates in verse 29. To eat in an unworthy manner is to take communion without discerning the body. All right, so what does that mean? What does it mean to discern the body? That's what we are supposed to do as we take communion, discern the body. Well, are we talking about the body of Christ or the body of the church? And I think the answer is yes. 
I think what Paul's getting at is we are to understand the significance and implications of Christ's death. Keep in mind, he laid down his own life. He gave up his body for us. And because of that, we are one body in him. He has made us one. Both remember his sacrifice and his body, and remember that you belong to that body. You're made one with it through that sacrifice. Discern both those things. We're going to have an understanding of those things as we come to the table. And if we don't get that peace, then don't come. And if we don't act in a way that is consistent with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our unity in the body, then don't come to the table. Before you eat, examine. I remember when I was in elementary school, I think so when I was young, I remember having some broccoli. Not for communion. It was just dinner. <laughs> and I remember I was about to take a bite of broccoli, and I looked down, and I saw a caterpillar in it. It dramatized the rest of you forever, like I was dramatized. Um, I love broccoli. Ever since then, I'll still find myself every once in a while looking down, just, what's in there before I eat? I still do it. I've never found another one. But still, I kind of have this tendency now to examine before I eat, right? Like a cupbearer was to examine the food before the king ate. We are to examine before we eat, but we're not examining the elements, we're examining us. That's the point. So I've heard people complain about, well, the, the bread is not gluten-free, or it doesn't, it's not unleavened. Or, stop examining the elements. You're supposed to examine yourself. That's the point. You're missing something here. Examine yourself before you come and take communion. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to be perfect? No. If you sin this week, you're still invited to the table. In fact, the reason the table exists is because you're a sinner. So it assumes that. Like, that's built in. We assume that you're sinful. So you don't have to refrain from the table and say, you know what, I kind of sinned this week. Maybe I shouldn't come. No, you probably need to come all the more. The point is, as you come, ask yourself, are you celebrating, are you worshiping, are you taking this meal, recognizing your place in the body of Christ and who Christ is? Make sure you understand that. And are you living in a way that is consistent with that? Are you worshiping in a way that is consistent with that? Of our union in the sacrifice of Christ. This is, by the way, I don't think communion is a private ceremony. It's a church thing. So I don't think it should be done necessarily at like summer camps that aren't part of the church or even in small groups where the church isn't present, communion is a body of Christ meal. It's not a meal for families or a sentimental moment between you and Jesus. Communion is a meal where we understand that we are united as one in the sacrifice of Christ. So Paul asks us to be careful about who takes to examine ourselves. That's why some churches do something that's called fencing the table. You've heard that language where they'll give warnings. Hey, before you come and take communion, examine yourself. Some churches won't even allow non-members to take communion because they're trying to maintain uh, this level of holiness and carefulness as they take communion. So we don't do that, but some churches do. Because Paul gives clear instructions on being careful about who eats. We would say, this table is a table for those who can examine themselves and know that they belong to Jesus by his sacrifice. It's a table for believers who know their place in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not able to examine yourself, if you are not able to understand who you are in Jesus Christ, don't come. 
But if you know you're a sinner saved by grace and are united to the church of Jesus Christ in that, the table is open for sinners. But there's a caution as you come. Be careful. Because this isn't just a frivolous, sentimental thing. Some have died because of their flippancy and sin and communion. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? This is why I believe that this is more than just a symbol. Because Paul tells us, he tells the Corinthians, this is why some of you are sick. This is why some of you have died. Because that tale of communion has become a judgment upon you. God has used this as a judgment upon his church. You say, would God do that? Would God actually kill his own people for worshiping him properly? I'd say, remember Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira? I don't think this is saying that every time somebody gets sick or every time somebody dies, it's a judgment upon them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a possibility. That sometimes God uses these means to correct his people. Without giving away too many details, I know of a pastor who died suddenly, shockingly. And it was revealed after, only to a couple, that he had been falling off into serious sin. It wasn't widely known. But it made me wonder, was his sudden death an act of God's grace to keep him from wandering further off and to ruining even more? I do wonder if God does this sometimes to keep people from even further sin. Does God judge his people from time to time, discipline them so that they may be prevented from going further off? That's exactly what was going on with the Corinthians. God, as a loving father, disciplined his church through communion Why? So that you won't be condemned with the world. Take this discipline seriously. We, as we come to the table, as we gather and worship, remember the Lord's discipline. It is an act of his mercy and grace to keep us from going further off into other sins. So, when you come to worship, if you're hungry, Get a snack at home. Which is a way of saying, don't use the church or a worship for all your selfish needs. Come ready to worship and praise with others. Paul says, wait for them. Wait for one another. Do this together. And you will find as you come to serve God and praise him and worship him and love others, you will be fed and you will be satisfied. And then there's some other instructions Paul has that we don't know anything about. We'll ask him in heaven. But his point is, our communal worship must reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. And I'll ask, just as a closing question, how do we do that? can discuss this in your 242 groups. 
How do you gather together in a way that honors the sacrificial love of Christ? How do we do this as a church? In your own home, amongst your friends. How do you worship wherever you are in a way that honors the Christ who sacrificed himself for you? Pray that will shape our hearts as we come together. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that in all things, as we come together and worship and, and pray is that it truly would be worship, not of ourselves, but of you. Not in a greedy way or a way that brings division, but in a way that sacrifices for others and gives all praise and honor to you because you are the God we worship and your son is the one who sacrificed himself. So may we, as we sang earlier, remember you, and remember Jesus Christ and give him honor and praise. Knowing, Lord, that Jesus sacrificed himself for sinners. So we don't come perfectly. We don't come um, righteously at all in ourselves. We come by the grace of God and the righteousness offered to us in Jesus Christ. And we eat remembering him. Help us, Lord, to do this. Spare us from final judgment. Use your discipline along the way to keep us. Guard us in your Son, we pray. Amen.